Hi, this is Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and welcome to Newsfeed, our podcast on the intersection of media, politics, and tech, which is where a lot of the action is these days. And one of the places those uh, those three things intersect is around the question of, of, of your audience's trust broadly and specifically of how you make sure that you're listening to criticism and that you're, you're showing people that you're, you're listening to criticism, that you are looking at your at replies um, these days. And before editors-in-chief got to have people tweet at them, there was this thing called the public editor. And... Uh, actually a pretty decades-old institution in, in, in American media, but the, but it really kind of became something prominent when the New York Times, in the wake of really what now seems like a totally forgotten scandal around a reporter who made some stuff up, instituted in 2003 a uh, sort of in-house critic who um, who would take reader complaints who would who and who would bring essentially report them out internally, bring them to the and force force the executive editor of the paper to respond. Um, and and last week they eliminated that role. Um, I, you know, I think in part in a new world where really there is not a shortage of, of public criticism and public response, you do not need to pay people to attack you anymore. But it's but also you know I think at a moment when 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 we are all trying to earn trust to demonstrate an openness to to fair-minded criticism. And so I'm so pleased to be joined today by I think the most successful of the Times public editors, Margaret Sullivan, the um, the current media columnist for the Washington Post, who did that job for four years. But I think something maybe I think your sort of fans on Twitter don't necessarily know about you was that you spent most of your career at the Buffalo News, were the editor in chief of the Buffalo News for a dozen years, ran a big newsroom there, you know, at a great Metro Daily. And I think I either read or heard recently that at some point in that, um, in the course of, of running that place, your publisher tried to persuade you to have an ombudsman public editor sort of thing. That's true. I actually wrote about this a little bit on on Facebook. Um, so my my publisher, who died this past year, um, and so therefore I guess can't be libeled, um, did ask me, or you know, did bring up the idea. I guess it must have been, you know, it was certainly. A, a little bit after the Times had started its public editor, so that must have been the the impetus for this. And he's, you know, he thought, well, this could be uh, an, a cool and good thing for the paper. And I, um, I dissuaded him um, on the grounds that, uh, well, first of all, you know, I don't think any editor of anything really wants a public editor or an ombudsman. Or what was your what was your immediate reaction to the idea? Well, horror, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, I talked him out of it on the grounds that I was a very responsive uh, – I mean th- this is somewhat disingenuous I suppose because I, the grounds on which I talked him out of it don't really address the issue. But I told him that the truth, which was that I was an extremely responsive um, editor-in-chief, that I, you know, I answered my mail. I was out in the community a lot. It wasn't hard to get a hold of me. And so there wasn't this sort of monolithic thing that people would have to, you know, break through in order to get to me. If there was Twitter back then, you would have been like responding to everybody in Buffalo who was mad about like the paper not having been delivered in the snow. Yeah, exactly right. So anyway, you know, and I think he was really just sort of floating it. But um, I did I did talk him out of it and was happy to have done so. And, and you then and you then in, two, I guess, 2000 and gosh, 14? 
became this this fifth public editor of the of the New York Times? 2012. 2012, gosh. I was there for almost four years, which made me, and now I can say this for sure, um, the longest serving of the public editors. Most of them have been for two years. Um, Clark Hoyt, you know, was there for three, but I was there for almost four, so... That's a record, I guess, of some sort. And I think you you were, I think, are widely seen as the most successful of the public editors um, in in terms of really like engaging the the broader media conversation, not, to, not rather than serving as kind of a letterbox for for the New York Times. And this past week, the New York Times announced that they're cutting, they're eliminating the public editor job. And I, but I, I think this is actually probably something that you and I disagree on because because I thought you did like great media writing when you were at the Times, and it obviously kind of took you into this new gig writing about the media all the time. When you were at the Times, I thought, why does she write about the New York Times all the time? There's other stuff happening. And now I'm glad you're not. And I think my own view of this is, you know, we um, we don't actually have to pay people to criticize us. They will do it for free. And it's great. It's a great service they provide. So why? And I think this does seem to be where the, that the New York Times will no, is canceling the is ending the public editor role. And I think they've probably come around to that view, too, that they don't need to pay people to attack them. Um, and, and I wonder... I wonder sort of how you felt about the announcement that it's ending and, and, and whether you ultimately wound up thinking it was a useful, like a, a thing worth having in a news institution to have a sort of in-house critic. I did think, you know, I felt like, especially at the Times, which is so large and is so influential and, and is, you know, one of a kind, really, um, I, you know, I think that I served a purpose. I, I hope so. I, I think I did. Um, not only in, you know, kind of, it's not just about answering reader mail. That's 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 really not in my mind what it was about, but rather you know looking at what was happening and seeing what sort of the the hot you know issue of the day was at the times, which could have been you know um, it, it could have been a, an obit that everyone was freaking out over because it was seen as sexist. It could have been. Um, it could, you know, it could have been the way. As I recall, you were you were seated in the obituary section. <laughs> at first, I was. I had a couple of different seats at the times, but my first my first desk was in the obit section, and so then it was really awkward. I mean, of course, the whole job is incredibly awkward. You're there in the newsroom. You're being paid by the paper, and you're there to cast a critical eye. And so, you know, you're kind of this weird um, inside, outside person, and there's a lot of inherent tension in it, and arguably a conflict of interest built into it in that you're being, you know, the way I approached the job was I cover, I sort of like like a beat. I felt like I was covering the New York Times in a, in a way, but more like as a columnist because I would have opinion about it, um, but certainly a lot of reporting. So, but then, you know, my paycheck was from the New York Times. So, so um, it, it's a weird, it's a very weird thing. And I assume they seated you in the obituary section on the assumption you'd never wind up writing about the obituary section? I, I think that the reason I was there was that uh, it was also the place where the standards editor, Phil Corbett, and the correct, you know, the, the another standards editor, a guy named Bre- Greg Brock, who does all the, is in charge of all the corrections, they were sitting there. So I think they thought that that was sort of a natural 
place to to put me. I don't know if this is true at the Times. Like, I feel like in the newspaper's tradition, obits are where you get exiled to when you've done something terrible. Well, at the Times, it's actually, you know, there's an art form. You know, certainly someone like Marguerite Fox um, is just, you know, a fantastic writer, and I don't think she would, I'm quite sure she wouldn't want to do anything else. But, you know, I mean, I guess it does have that sense of Siberia. In, in any case, in your first couple of months, you managed to take a shot at the obit section. Well, I couldn't help it because there was this obit of a woman whose name was Yvonne Brill, and she was a, uh, she was a rocket scientist, actually. And the obit started off praising her ability to make a a mean beef stroganoff, which, you know, was was meant to be sort of a setup for the fact that she was a rocket scientist, but but actually ended up reading as kind of sexist. And people certainly reacted to it this that way. And, you know, if you think about would you ever write uh, an obit of a man who was a rocket scientist by talking about what, you know, how good he was at grilling barbecue in the backyard, I don't, I kind of doubt it. And so, but so did you wound up, I mean, I guess, I guess one thing about, you know, they, like there's a, you know, a fair amount of controversy right now about the fact that the Times has canceled this job. And I do wonder what you see as the value of the, you know, the value that that position has as opposed to me taking a shot at the New York Times or the New York Review of Books or The Blaze or whoever writing some critical essay about the New York Times. Well, some of it, is, there are two things. One is that you you tend to get the attention of the top editors and really the top people at the Times in general, also on the business side. Uh, the public editor has a kind of authority because, you know, you've been appointed by the institution to do it. So it's hard to ignore. You're also in the building and that makes you hard to ignore. So I think that while you might – there could be lots of criticism of something and you just – you know, it would be easy to say, well, of course, there's always criticism of us. We're the New York Times and so we're going to ignore that. Um, it's very hard to ignore the public editor. And so – and that's also true, you know, kind of an offshoot of that is that when you're seeking comment, you will get it. I mean, it's a very, very rare case um, in which you wouldn't. So while, you know, you or, you know, the Huffington Post's media writer or Dylan Byers, you know, might call and and be seeking comment and might get a statement um, from the Times or even get through to Dean and he might – Dean Becquet, the editor, who might speak to them – um, you can't be sure of that. And, you know, the public editor can kind of go back at it um, and really, you know, bear down on something in a in a very, sh- you know, uh, persistent way. Did, did you get the sense that when you were there that, that Jill Abramson, that Dean Bacay, that Arthur Salzberger were looking for an excuse to kill you off? Well, <laughs> certainly not Arthur. Um, I think that I think that Arthur Salzberger really believed in the in the role and really valued it and really liked it. Um, and it was easier for him be, to feel that way because it's the editors and the top editor in particular who's being questioned more and being uh, second-guessed more. So I, I did not feel uh, – I did not feel that either Jill or Dean were looking for an excuse to get rid of the 
the role, but I think I did feel like they had more mixed feelings about it than Arthur did. And your successor, Liz Spade, who I am not suggesting you necessarily want to dive deep into this, but took a lot of heat for, I think, you know, for my, what to me look was sort of a, you know, you, I think you did a very good job of, you know, diving into the internet conversation and taking what the sort of legitimate and interesting criticisms from Twitter or for things, from things people on the left or the right had written, taking them to the Times leadership. Dan Okrent, the first Times, I think he was the first, did that, you know, also I think really, they did a, you know, a famous piece about whether whether the Times is a liberal newspaper that like that responded to you know a pretty good faith criticism of the Times in in a in a sort of open hearted good faith way, um, and I think the cr- criticism of your successor in a way was that she was engaging with people who were really just messing with you, who were just messing with the Times rather than in rather than in good faith, and I do feel like I mean because I like respond to a lot of people on Twitter every day and and like mixing it up in these conversations, but I feel like the challenge is often like finding that line between people who are actually trying to engage you on the substance and people who just sort of consider themselves with, at war with you and are going to use whatever kind of whatever comes to hand to fling at you. And so it's, it's and, and will constantly change their position as the conversation shifts. And so I guess I wonder how you, as you navigated these like really kind of genuinely pretty treacherous waters, thought about like thought about which which criticisms are legitimate because in a way what what a institutional critic does is is elevate some criticisms as ones that are worth responding to um you know i don't think there was any science to it but i some of it would be kind of critical mass if something reached you know the level where it seemed like there was a lot in the inbox there was a lot on twitter i was hearing about it it was you know it was coming at me from all sides and possibly internally too um, then, you know, I would want to take it up and I would want to take it up fast, um, you know, not for a column next week or something, but on that very day. Um, so, you know, I just did it by feel, I think. And it's a kind of a – it's almost a news judgment. Well, I think it is actually a news judgment. Um, so, you know, and of course you make mistakes when you do that. And I know that I, I did um, at times – you know, possibly elevate some things that, or or go too heavy with with things that were, you know, kind of the 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 dust up du jour, and that maybe in the long run didn't merit it. But I think for the most part, it would it, there was this kind of sense of oh wow, this is there was no question in my mind when certain things would come up. It was like oh well, this is I'm going to be dealing with this today, and you would know very quickly it would it would tend to start on Twitter, you know. And but then it would build. And and by the time, you know, maybe I got into the office or something, there would be just a lot. And then I would just try to do it. Um, And I, you know, I did have probably too much, uh, but a sort of a sense of urgency about the timing and wanting to wanting to respond in in the moment. Um, And, you know, you can make mistakes when you do that. I there were a couple times that I regret that I uh, didn't follow my own rules about always talking to, you know, sometimes I would write sort of a hot take um, very rarely. But, you know, my general... Is there one you regret, is there one you regret in particular? Yeah. There, I don't know if I can reconstruct it very well. But um, there was a piece about... There was a sort of dust-up about Gay Talese and... Um, he had spoken at this 
symposium or something and talked about I mean boy I'm really having trouble it was it was, it was a about he had said something about women in the media maybe that was That's right taken. and it upset people externally and it upset people at the times and while I'm not sorry about what I said which was critical of the way the times then wrote this sort of a uh, very sympathetic style piece about him. But I didn't follow my usual rule, which was to at least talk to the people in styles and say, "What you know, why did you do this? I wrote it more as a, as a critical hot take. And, you know, it would have been better um, to do it the other way. So, but I almost always, I mean, I had a formula, which was I would take the criticism, I would usually quote from the criticism, then I would go to whoever was involved, get their comment, and then I would, you know, quote all of this and usually sort of block quote it in some way. And then I, at, these were my, not my columns, but my kind of blog posts. And then I would say at the end, here's my take. And, and if you didn't have a take, you know, if you just laid it out like here's the problem, I thought that that was, I, I came to realize that that was a, um, that was a sort of a sellout that you did need to reach some kind of a conclusion and make a judgment. Did you did you wind up making a judgment on what I feel like is in some sense probably the animating force behind a lot of the columns you wrote, a lot of the questions, a lot of the criticism, you know, not just of the Times, but of really most journalistic institutions in America that do real reporting, which is used to be you're biased, you're liberal, now is you are fake news. But it's, you know, a basically conservative attack on the establishment media uh, the, you know that's been obviously going for years and years did you wind up with a uh, did you make a judgment on that in the end are we fake news you know that for one thing that so it's only been a little over a year since I left um, but that certainly that phrase was not in the conversation I was hearing even a year ago and of course there was a conservative criticism of the times but it, it it was nothing like it is now. I mean, and not just the criticism of the Times, but of all sort of es- establishment or traditional or independent or however you want to put it, um, press, including BuzzFeed. Um, it, it just it hadn't reached the level that it's at now. But the criticism, but the criticism that the Times, when you know, was was. I mean, this is sort of in a way. I think this was like, you know, it's an abiding criti- It's it's the core of Fox News's approach. It's an abiding criticism of the media. So you know that that. And and I wondered if that if you like I don't know if you wound up sort of reaching a sense of what your answer to that question was. Yeah, I did. I mean, and I would be asked, you know, because of Dan Okrent's famous column is the Times, you know, which I think had a may have even had the headline is the Times a liberal newspaper, and then he answered it right away. Of course it is. You know, because of that, people would you know would ask me that question too, and would want to engage on that. And I, I think I I pretty much adopted. Um, and accepted Jill's uh, Jill Abramson's answer to that, which was, you know, we're we're an urban cosmopolitan newspaper, you know, in a in a very um, blue city in a blue state, and it's it's you know it is those things. I I don't think that it's um, news columns, it's news coverage. Uh, I think they make a huge effort not to. Not to be, you know, partisan there. Certainly, until recently, at least the editorial page has has leaned pretty far left. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I didn't find it to be 
as fascinating a subject as all that. It, 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 I think we know what the New York Times is, and so, you know. Yeah, but we also, I think, I think I do feel like the thing that folks who worry about that, you know, who who don't work at newspapers or news organizations, don't think about that much, is that we just must spend most of our time thinking about how to get a story, not how to, not how to influence the political debate. There is a kind of. Um, you know, when people talk about the separation between, oh, there's a wall between, you know, editorial and the newsroom, and that's true. And it's not as if people are conspiring, like, you're going to write this story and then we're going to editorialize on it and it'll all be a big, wonderful liberal package. There isn't that. But it is true that you tend to get many of the same kind of people at a big, important newspaper like The Times. And they often will have similar points of view. So in that sense, it, it you know, there is a similarity. Do you think that the Times getting rid of the public editor is a, in any, in a meaningful way is going to make, I mean, is going to dent the credibility of the paper, or the media at a moment that it, we're all pretty much under assault? I mean, I, it, it is, it's worrisome in that, in that sense. I, I do, you know, understand why they want to get rid of it or have gotten rid of it. Um, but I think it comes at kind of a bad time because the paper is under assault. But, you know, are are most people um, aware of, you know, I, I didn't find that there was tremendous awareness about what the public editor was or that there even was one. I wonder, you're now a columnist for The Washington Post from from, from, where, from where you are talking to me right now in some, I guess, probably dimly lit little studio. That's, that's where I am in New York. One, and you, you wrote recently about, um, about, about women in journalism and, and, you know, kind of listed a number of women in, you know, really senior roles at major news organizations, including, including our publisher, Dow Wynn. And, and that's, you know, sub, I think diversity broadly, making sure that you have representation kind of in senior newsroom roles, something I think everybody in this business thinks about all, like quite a bit now. And we certainly do. It it did make me wonder about sort of how different that conversation was, whether whether people were thinking about the same way when you were a woman running a major newsroom for, you know, through the 90s. It was. I wasn't doing it in the 90s, but um, I got to the 2000s. Gosh. So yes. No, that's OK. You know, I was the first woman to edit that paper. I had been told at one point when I was an ambitious, you know, sub-editor of some sort, there'll never be a woman editor here, so forget it. You know, I remember, I don't know who said that, but some somebody on the staff, uh, that was that was an evaluation. And when I was named editor, there were of the top, so the Buffalo News at that time was like the, I don't know, maybe the 50th largest newspaper in the country of something like 1,400. So, you know, pretty big in that sense. Um, but of the top 100 papers, there were when I was named editor, there were 13 women editors, and I don't think that's changed much, um, or you know, gotten a whole lot bigger. Um, and but now there are many you know organizations that aren't newspapers that are big media companies. And what I found out on that day that you're referring to when I did a piece about uh, about women at the very my my cutoff was. These are women at the very top of news organizations um, so that, you know, they weren't the second in command. They would be the first in in their area. And what I found out was I learned an important life lesson, which is never make a list. I just said, I know this won't be inclusive, but here are 10 or here are 12, whatever I said, of, you know, women who are at the top of news organizations. 
<clears throat> and I quickly, you know, was being bombarded from the outside by, but you forgot this person, you know, the head of Yahoo, you know, the, the, the editor of Time magazine, all of whom were totally did belong on the list. And I modified it quickly there, you know, so there are, there actually are a lot and, um, and, and it's, you know, it's come a long way. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was another column you wrote, which was about, about Julian Assange. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of question around, you know, if, if he emerges into the daylight at some point, will he be arrested? Is the U.S. going to charge him? What will they charge him with? And then, like, should, you know, sh- is this something that, that reporters should be worried about? I mean, and I guess the first question is, like, you know, is he, is he a journalist? Well, he's a publisher. Um, so... Um, I think, you know, he's not a journalist in the sense that we usually think of somebody out reporting a story and, you know, weighing different points of view and putting something together. But he is certainly a publisher. And and I think people should be very, very concerned about it because he's not well liked among uh, among many journalists. Um, People think that in some cases he's been reckless or they don't like his personality, that sort of thing. But if, in fact, he is successfully prosecuted under the Espionage Act uh, as a publisher, it will make it a whole lot easier when the government decides to prosecute the next you know, journalist, the next publisher. It, it'll, you know, it's, it's a way to go at it that if they in fact do because he's holed up in the embassy. But if they ever are able to do it, it might lay the groundwork for something that we would find a lot more alarming. And, and what, what do you mean? What do I mean about more alarming? Yeah. Well, I, I think once you've got, uh, you know, let's say you successfully prosecute and perhaps jail uh, Julian Assange, uh, then you know, then the next time that a major news organization, the Times, the Post, BuzzFeed, CNN, whoever it may be, um, publishes, uh, you know, leaked classified information, um, now you've got a track, now there's a, a track record of of putting not just a leaker in jail, but now the publisher. Do you think it matters whether because I, I, I've you know I've certainly been involved in, and I think there are a lot of conversations right now among reporters and, and groups that su- sort of think about this stuff about what you know what to do if and when he's charged. Do you think it matters like kind of how the like what he is charged with? Think the details matter, or do you think just you know whether it's whether it's espionage, whether it's connected to um, to the Russian interference in the election versus whether it's a pure kind of charge of basically whether it's purely rooted in, in, in republished and classified information or do you just think any any attempt to go after him is essentially kind of like the thin end of the wedge? I, I do think it'll be the thin end of the wedge. I mean it's hard to – you know, I, I, I find it hard to kind of judge it in advance but in – you know, I think that a- anything that happens with him uh, – could you know should should worry us and we should treat it that way you know before <laughs> during and and while it's happening and it, if it happens i mean now he you know the the charges against him in sweden have been dropped or modified greatly and so you know i mean is he going to live the rest of his life in that embassy i i mean it's it's a very weird situation it, it is a weird situation the um 
And, and I guess the last question I want to ask in, in that regard is, do you, I mean, the Trump administration, I mean, there's sort of a narrative and obviously a lot of rhetoric of a Trump or a Trump administration war on the press. They talk about um, libel laws. You know, he's just, they, they, he attacks the media every day. Also, his staff have proven like the greatest friends of the White House press corps there have ever been and leak constantly. He obviously is a, like lives almost entirely through the media, consumes it constantly, you know, shares our work, whether, you know, in various contexts on social media. Um, and in some ways, and, 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 you know, has not, I mean, I think has, you know, in various ways struggled to get his hands on the levers of government to do anything. But it's been hard to see us, I mean, there's been this real rhetorical assault on the media accompanied by a kind of media obsession that I've never really seen. And I think no substantive action, unless I'm missing something. And I wonder. Well, it's early. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's June. We're only, what, four or five months into this administration. So um, and, you know, when when you see um, all these different things, you know, whether it's a reporter getting roughed up or, um, you know, jailed briefly, nevertheless arrested for asking questions or, you know, whatever it may be, I, I think those things are a, an indirect result of this rhetoric. And, you know, we also know uh, through a leak um, that he's that he's asked that he asked then FBI director Jim Comey, you know, wouldn't, you know, be a great idea to jail some journalists, Jim. Um, you know, yeah, it's it's just talk at this point, and maybe nothing will ever come of it. But um, I I think it's extremely troubling and, and worrisome. Thank you for coming on, Margaret. You're welcome, Ben. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newsfeed. The show is produced by Meg Kramer, Eleanor Kagan, and Daryl Levy. 